This is Teach, Travel, Talk About It, a podcast from International TEFL Academy, where we sit down with our alumni, staff, and other members of the TEFL community to hear their stories about teaching English abroad, traveling the world, and everything in between. I'm your host, Jasira Vardak. Amanda, you were in our uh, alumni panel last week on adjusting to abroad. So I'm really looking forward to continuing that conversation. Just so everyone knows, Amanda moved to South Korea in her 30s to teach at a hagwon for three years and has since returned to the US to work as an entrepreneur and freelancer. She is primarily here today to talk about mental health and her experiences relating to that, both in deciding to go to and living in Korea and a little bit of everything in between after that, etc. Also, please note, this is a disclaimer, but the content of this episode of Teach, Travel, Talk About It should not be taken as medical advice. We will be addressing one individual's experiences with their own mental health, and because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation for any medical questions. In addition, the experiences and opinions expressed by Amanda in this episode are her own and may not represent International TEFL Academy's views, official recommendations, or opinions. So I would actually love to start off if you could tell us a little bit of the story of how you ended up uh, going to South Korea. Absolutely. So what that started with was I had actually gone on a working holiday to Australia in 2009-2010 and someone had suggested teaching overseas to me. I never really acted on it until I was laid off from a job around 2012 and I decided that I really needed to make a change because my life wasn't going in the direction that I wanted it to. So even though I didn't feel ready at all, I signed up for ITA's online course. I took the course and was working some contractor jobs at the Hershey company actually. And then through process of elimination using ITA's chart, I decided South Korea was the best fit for me. I knew that I wanted to save money and that Asia was one of the best places to do that. I knew that also Korea had the EPIC program, which is what I initially applied to and was a little bit less competitive than Japan, as well as I liked the incentives that were being offered at that time. So that's a short version of what led me to choose South Korea. Did you go over through EPIC or did you go over through Hawaii? Yes, I wasn't accepted into EPIC, so I contacted a recruiter and I went through them to find my first job. Where in South Korea were you? I was in Daegu for all three years. And was that a place that you had sort of identified beforehand or was that just how things worked out? No, actually, in retrospect, I really am happy that I worked in, in Hagwans, even with their you know reputation sometimes, because I loved having the smaller class size mm-hmm. and I liked that I was able to choose the, the place I was able to live in. Mm-hmm. So I did look and told the recruiter that Daegu was one of my top choices because I'm not from a big city, but mm-hmm. I still wanted to be in a city. So I knew Seoul probably wouldn't be a good fit for me. And I basically selected Daegu because it had the, the you know the train system that's in Korea. It had a small airport. It was I had a lot of hiking options, outdoor options, which was important to me to have access to. And yeah, so I did select that city. Since we are focusing a little bit on mental health today, I'm curious about that preparation process for you in heading to South Korea in terms of considering about what to say in your application, talking to your doctor before leaving, etc. How was that for you? 
Absolutely. So after I was laid off, I had been in counseling because I had suffered from severe anxiety for a time and ended up being diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and major depression. And it wasn't the first time, you know, I'd been diagnosed with depression, but the official diagnosis for anxiety was new. But I had also suffered a panic attack during those months because I had mm-hmm. a couple other major life things happen. And during that therapy session and counseling, I began taking medication. And so that was a concern because I did, through my research, know that South Korea is a little more strict about and not as um, open mm-hmm. to talk about mental health. So I did disclose when I applied to Epic that I was being treated because I remember that was a question on the form. When I did apply to Hagwans through the recruiter, I mentioned this to the recruiter and they said that we can't advise you on what to do with that. So I ended up not mentioning that I had been treated for anxiety and depression or any mental health issues on my Hagwan form which was my choice, but definitely is like everyone's individual choice as far as what they do with that. Obviously that that worked out okay for you. Yes, yes. The counselor, I did mention what I wanted to do with her. And truthfully, I wasn't 100%, you know, whether it would work or not, because I still had leftover from being laid off. I still had a lot of insecurities and, and self-doubt, but I was determined to, to do it anyway. And it Ultimately, you know, worked out like I've still, which I know we'll talk about more, I was still treated while I was in Korea. And it actually, I think, made me stronger and more confident in myself in many ways. But I did consult my my counselor, absolutely. Yeah, I can see how that would do it. Anytime that you're given the ability to have some kind of control or ownership over, you know, your own mind, your own you know body, your own choices, that kind of thing, it, it definitely is a confidence boost, regardless of the situation, really, I think, or of most situations at any rate. We'll come back to to this because we're going to be talking about finding healthcare in mental health care specifically in Korea. But I'm curious about the transition process for you, especially going over with anxiety, going over with depression. What was that transition from the U.S. to South Korea like for you, those first few days, weeks, months, etc.? Stressful. <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely stressful. Fair. <laughs> because absolutely the whole flight over, I was thinking in my head, what am I doing? Can I do it? The mental health concern. There was also the insecurities about can I teach. Uh, of course. <laughs> so yep. even though I took the course, I was just like, can I teach? The de- time going there was definitely stressful. The the job also I think contributed to that. My first hagwan, but so it took some time I think to adjust when I first got there. But I did go over with enough medication from my psychiatrist that would last me two to three months until. I found an alternative that I could, like a hospital I could go to in mm-hmm. Daegu. How, how did that conversation with your, your doctor go in terms of, was it easy enough to get the longer prescription, the extra um, months of medication? I think what I had mentioned this to the my counselor and the psychiatrist a couple months before I was leaving. So I don't remember exactly how I stocked up. But of course, yeah, there definitely is a limit based on insurance, Mm -hmm. how much I could get. And I wasn't keeping, you know, my U.S. insurance because I had, yeah, Obamacare was around then. Yeah, I had Obamacare insurance through ACA. So that was going Mm -hmm. away once I left. So I think, I don't remember the exact conversation we had, but I I think he did try to help me as much as he could Mm -hmm. to get more. So it sounds like it 
it's definitely helpful to have that conversation with your your doctor or doctors. Absolutely, and I, and I think some insurance companies will potentially give you more if you tell them you're going overseas. I think there is like a override exception mm-hmm. thing that some insurance companies do have. But of course, up to the individual insurance company. Right. I'm, I'm glad that you were able to get that, that stockpile of medications. And I think that's a good piece of advice regardless, even if it's an over-the-counter medication or menstruation products or face skincare products, anything that you're not sure if you're going to be able to get it or how you're going to be able to get it abroad. And it's something that you absolutely you know need to have for whatever reason. It's good to just take a couple of months. Um, absolutely. We've talked about how you prepared in terms of leaving for South Korea, but how about once you were in South Korea, what was it like navigating your mental health within the Korean healthcare system? I don't remember it being too challenging. A lot of the information I would find, I I would just Google and search for resources. And I found other hospitals related, not just the one I went to for my mental health medication that way, was to look through blogs through people who had been in Daegu. And I fairly quickly, like definitely within the first two or three months, found the hospital that I ultimately went to. They were a university hospital and found, and they had an international kind of office where a translator would go with you as well, walk you through how to pay and the pharmacy collecting your medication because that was slightly different, obviously, than in whatever country like the listeners are are from. So Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't too challenging. And then even like months later or with, I don't, I think within that first year, I could find the office and go to the pharmacy by myself without the translator because I knew where things were. Mm-hmm. I had studied Korean and my psychiatrists that I saw knew enough English that the translator didn't need to be in the appointment. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I'm just curious, Do was that not just unique to Daegu, to have an international office and a translator? Yeah, I think, again, I, I only went, my women's hospital also had a really good um, office for that. I think it depends. Like, some of them probably don't, The more, especially mm-hmm. if you're in a more rural area. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Daegu has several U.S. military bases. Right. So I think that's why we had some. I'm sure Seoul, they definitely have a lot. and But I think probably in the more rural areas, it might be less common. Do you remember how exactly you found this hospital? I might have asked in a Facebook group because I know Facebook, joining some of the Facebook groups in Korea was like the big way that you found information. Mm-hmm. I know that for my women's hospital, I found that through an old blog post, which was very helpful because I also realized that the Appointment runs a little bit differently at the women's hospital than in the U.S., so that was very good to know in advance. <laughs> and so I don't remember what I used exactly for the place where I got my medication, but I know that I probably asked in a Facebook group or found it through um, just Google information. Yeah. Or it might have been there was a webinar or seminar that I had to go through as a new teacher in Daegu, and there might have been some information that they gave us at that seminar. Essentially, it does sound like with a little bit of searching, it's feasible to find that information. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely possible. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but you do have to put in some legwork. And were you, because you mentioned earlier, and it's absolutely accurate, South Korea definitely has a different view on mental health and certainly uh, prescription medication for mental health concerns than other parts of the world and definitely different from from the U.S. Were you concerned at all about privacy in going to that hospital? 
yes, absolutely. That was one of my concerns in the beginning. But I asked the doctors and the international office, and they assured me that anything I went to the hospital for would not be um, shared with my hagwan. After a couple months, you know, of going, I had less concerns about that. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, it was not something that I shared openly at either of my two hagwans. But I would talk about it with friends. Can you talk a little bit more about why that wasn't something that you talked about at work? I didn't want to risk any, since I didn't disclose it on my like visa mm -hmm. application, I did not want to risk any getting into any trouble with it. And my first hagwan was also a very stressful environment. So I didn't necessarily trust, I got along with, with everyone, but I didn't trust anyone, you know, enough to share my right. mental history because there's a definitely a lot of vulnerability in sharing that information. I mean, even uh, with employers or coworkers in, in countries that have a, a different view on it, like here in the U.S., it's always a vulnerable moment. So I, mm -hmm. I definitely understand. You said that your first Hagwan was a pretty stressful environment. Could you talk a little bit more about that and sort of how you navigated through that stressful environment? Absolutely. So what I tried to do was to do as much in advance as possible. And unfortunately, some of that meant working outside of paid hours. But we had to do, for example, student evaluations every month. And not, there wasn't enough time in the teaching schedule and my work schedule to do that. So I would often make a template and write down things throughout the month that were more individual to each student. And that helped cut down my anxiety a little bit as, as well as help me cut down my workload at the end of each month when these evaluations mm -hmm. were due. So I would, with every task I had at the job, I tried to do as much planning to make my, reduce my stress level as much as possible. Yeah, because of course, being in a new environment, in a new country, in a job that you have essentially never done before already is pretty anxiety inducing. And so even if anyone listening doesn't have anxiety, it can still be something that, that causes anxiety. So that's a really good idea, doing as much to, to prepare around it as possible and to set yourself up for success. You said that you worked for two hagwans. It sounds like you left the one that was more stressful and, and went to one that was hopefully less stressful. Absolutely. It was very much the opposite of the first job where it was very relaxed. And I think they were confused for a while. For example, at my first job, I think we had to always mention if we were going to the bathroom and that's the second mm. job they're like you don't need to tell us you're going to the bathroom it's like okay <laughs> <laughs> no one likes being treated like that no <laughs> thank you how did you find your second job i found it i think through a job opportunity facebook group and i contacted i initially had contacted the person for a different job but that was full so he quickly told me about this position and I applied. So I basically found it through a recruiter that was posting in a Facebook, Korea-related Facebook group mm -hmm. for Daegu. I enjoyed it a lot because there was like a teacher's room. I had a more relaxed relationship with my coworkers. And funnily enough, it was maybe three blocks away from my first job. So I lived in the same neighborhood, even though I had two different jobs for three years. One of the things that we talk about a lot, just in terms of moving abroad, and we definitely addressed it in our alumni panel, it's really important to have a support network wherever you are abroad, and obviously especially important for mental health. How did you find yours while you were in Korea? I think I made 
my first connections through a language course that I took at the YMCA in Daegu. And from there, I joined through, I think, an opportunity that was posted on Facebook where foreigners and Koreans were getting together at a park in the city. Mm -hmm. And it was socializing, which is not always natural for me to do with, as a, like an introvert, you know, an anxious person. So, yep. so putting myself out there, I took the language course, met people that way. We'd go out for lunch afterwards. And then eventually, like you would start to make more and more connections and find people that you really connected mm. with. I, I had a very similar experience in Taiwan. When I first arrived, I lived temporarily in a, a sublet with a group of primarily other, other foreigners. And they were great people, but they just weren't my people. It was nice to be able to still have opportunities to be social. And the expat community in Taiwan is quite small. So they were certainly people I continued to see for the time that I was there. But it was just a start and it took a while to find the people that were, were right for me and were a good fit for me. And I think just jumping off of that, probably the thing that I would have done differently in moving abroad is thought more about what kinds of people and what kinds of communities I really wanted to try to find when I was there because I would have loved to have found some of those people in some of those communities a lot sooner. Absolutely. There are definitely, um, I think someone that I met in Korea called them convenience friends. So <laughs> you meet, they're, they're people that you normally wouldn't socialize with, mm -hmm. but when you're abroad, you're a little, can't be as, you know, selective. But, but again, it is also nice that everyone knows you're all in the same boat. Like you're all new to this country and maybe struggling or succeeding on different levels. So people are more open to helping and uh, helping you and, mm -hmm. and introducing you to other people mm -hmm. and also helping you find like hospitals if you need it or a tax advice. Like everyone's more open because they mm -hmm. understand the situation. I think that's part of what is so lovely about living abroad is that you find exactly people are more, more willing to help, more open to, to going out of their way for you than they necessarily are here back home or wherever home might be. And that's not a negative perspective on on people from home. It's just that they don't have to they don't have to do those things. It's not as important. It's not as as necessary. So what was it like coming home from South Korea and making that transition? The reverse culture shock wasn't too bad in the beginning because I had already planned to take a several months backpacking trip because the vacation is fairly limited like as far as how long I could go away in South Korea. I had planned to go to Central America for several months and volunteer in Mexico, so I still had kind of something to focus on and look forward to. I also mm -hmm. flew home with my cat, so I was very focused on That's her. Right. Yes. That's right. You adopted a cat in South Korea. I did, yes. What was it, slight tangent, what was it like flying home with, with a cat? What was that process like? Yeah, so I had researched it before I decided to adopt a cat because I wasn't sure how um, heavy the process would be. And it actually was quite simple mm -hmm. to get her ready. So she just had to have all her up-to-date vaccinations. She had to have a paper from the vet that said that she didn't have communicable diseases to people mm -hmm. and that she was healthy to travel or fit to travel. So... When I booked my flight home, I actually had to pay 
call the airline to make sure they had space because they only mm -hmm. carry, depending on the size of the aircraft, like a certain amount of space in each class, like economy, first class. And I paid a fee, but it's also important to make sure that you know the airline's policies because some air, each airline's different as far as like mm -hmm. the weight of the pet what seasons they'll let you have pets on the plane and also like the carrier size but it all worked out for me like i found i flew air canada and they had mm -hmm. a 10 kilo weight limit so she was definitely under that but once we got to the airport she i went to get customs got a paper and she was under my seat so the plane the airline wasn't full as well the airplane so i was able to get a row to myself um, and between watching movies and the, the airplane noise, I don't think most people could hear her, mm -hmm. but I did, I'm very conscientious, and so I did pack like a full thing of earplugs just in case <laughs> to offer people if they said, I was like, I'm so sorry, because my cat's stress response into carriers to meow. Okay. So she literally meowed from the time she was in her carrier in Seoul's International Airport until we got to Pennsylvania. That's a lot of meowing, that's hours. That, that was like 24 hours of meowing. <laughs> She must have been exhausted. She was getting worse <laughs> by the end. I'm glad that she arrived safely if a little in need of a cough drop. But <laughs> I I had interrupted you earlier, so the process of coming back to the U.S. Yeah, it, there was definitely reverse culture shock, but I remembered being surprised at how much I missed Daegu mm. because when I initially left, I felt ready to go. I did really love the city I was in, so I was sad about that. And I was also definitely stressed about coming back to the healthcare system in the U.S. as far as mm. like I had national healthcare in South Korea, and then I would have to find my own insurance here. So those things were on my mind as well as trying to find work when I came back. But the trip that I had planned kind of numbed that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But when I came home, it was definitely... Or from came home from my trip in Central America, it was um, challenging for a bit, right? Like I'm, I'd lost some connections with people in the U.S. Mm. I missed Korea more than I thought I would, even though I had initially felt really ready to leave, and it was a, a challenge. But I actually took a reentry course that helped me a lot really? with that. Yes. Where was that course offered? It was something I found through someone that was involved in the international education field and she had mentioned this person um, her name is kate brubaker mm -hmm. and it was like a small cohort of maybe four of us uh, talking about our re-entry situations but it, it was great because it did really help me realize that coming back home didn't mean that i wasn't like a traveler anymore mm -hmm. and especially even after COVID, you know, I learned you can be right. a traveler anywhere, right? Like you mm -hmm. can be a traveler in your hometown. Yeah. So that reentry course helped a lot with my reverse culture shock. That's the first time I've I've heard of a reentry course, but what a great idea because it's it's true that reverse culture shock, but also missing the place that you are in and the anxiety. I had the same anxiety about getting back in the healthcare system here in the U.S. and confusion. Because being away from it and having it be something that you really don't think about, you don't worry about, you don't really stress about when you're in countries with a national healthcare system that you can be on. And then coming back to having to sort all of that out again in the U.S. and having to look at different insurance plans and figure out what's best for you and pay for it. Yeah, that was a big part of that reverse culture shock. So I'm, I'm really glad you, you had that support of, of that cohort. What have you been doing since you returned to the U.S.? I started teaching online with GoGoKid, the, one of the Chinese companies, mm -hmm. in 2019, January 2019. Mm -hmm. So I might be getting the year wrong, but I was there for almost two years or a little over two years. 
until they closed in August with the new regulations that China passed. Since then, I have been laying low as far as teaching, and I actually am going to start tutoring with Cambly as a fun way to do some cultural exchange. I also have been working as a virtual assistant. So I help entrepreneurs and online business owners manage their YouTube channels and do video editing. How did you get into that? Was that something you did a little bit before or was that wholly new since coming back from South Korea? It was entirely new. So I took a course for people that want to start online businesses to basically get the the building blocks in place. Mm -hmm. And I started off doing general admin services. For example, virtual assistants can do a lot of things. A lot of the general admin services are things like doing email, like inbox management. You can help with whatever miscellaneous tasks like the, the business owner needs support with. I started that way and eventually took a mini course that was related to YouTube and was very fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into doing the video editing and decided that I would primarily work with YouTube. Do you remember what course you took for becoming an online uh, business entrepreneur that kind of got you started on this? Yes, it was called the Laptop Lifestyle Bootcamp. It's interesting to hear about, we we had another episode recently where we talked to an alumni couple, Stephen and Jess, who have been country hopping and teaching online and they lost their jobs in the big Chinese regulations situation. And Stephen is doing copywriting and, and writing for journalism and then Jess is looking into being a virtual assistant. So it's always fascinating to hear the different options for people when they're coming back from teaching abroad or intending to continue being abroad, but no longer wanting to teach. There's so much out there in terms of online work, in terms of remote work. Obviously we have COVID um, going on, but how much traveling have you done since returning? You mentioned still being a traveler. How has that worked for you? Fairly well. I joined Trusted House Sitters, which is a site that allows pet sitters and house sitters to connect with people that have pets or Mm -hmm. homes that they want someone to look after while they're away. And I joined that in December of 2019 and happened to do two house sits just before COVID lockdown started. Mm -hmm. So that's primarily the way I've been traveling since the pandemic began was to do house sitting. And I stuck last year, I stuck to ones that I could drive to. So they were mostly in the mid Atlantic Mm -hmm. region of the United States. And the goal hopefully is to do further ones further afield, like Western US to go to Europe once Mm -hmm. things have lightened up a little bit. We had talked about this before as well, but how do you manage your anxiety while you're traveling? Sometimes it it can be a challenge, but the the biggest thing that I do is before I go, I I basically make a list of, you know, like before I went to Central America, for example, I was going to several countries. So I make a mm-hmm. list of all the embassies, all the central information, and I give it to my parents and my brother and his wife. Mm-hmm. So that helps me and also helps their anxiety <laughs> because my mom <laughs> always worries. And then I just prep for the low moments. But when I'm traveling, I I try to set small goals because Mm. sometimes if I'm feeling very depressed or anxious, getting out the door of my hostel might be the biggest challenge. So I try to do small things like just walk around a neighborhood or go to see one Mm -hmm. thing and then maybe I can do more after that. So like I try to set small goals, still leave my comfort zone a little bit, but also travel at my own pace. Mm. I don't like to do something from the time I'm awake to the time I go to sleep. I like to see a couple things, but still plan for downtime mm-hmm. and see as much of one place 
as I can slowly. So like knowing myself helps and also like maybe having a day where I just watch Netflix all day. That's totally fine yeah. if you need it. That's good advice. That that very much reminds me of when I first arrived in in Taiwan. And I, I hadn't realized at this point that I had anxiety. And for me, it wasn't culture shock so much as that that was difficult. And so I did something very similar, just, yep, small goals. Today, we're going to go grocery shopping and it's going to take as long as it's going to take. And you're going to buy whatever you can buy. And if you don't get everything, if you don't understand what you're staring at in the grocery store, that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, and two, I also just make, it's, it might sound silly, but you just think of even the little things you've done when you say, I've done nothing. You might be hard on yourself, like, like I am, and say, I haven't done anything today. But what you say is, look, I got out of bed, I made my bed, I showered, and you're like, good job, self, and you give yourself a high five. Because that sounds silly, but it does make a difference when yeah. you realize, I did not do double negative, I'm going to be bad English teachers, not, I did not do like, nothing today. <laughs> so... I um I did something. Exactly. It's funny too. Some of the best memories I have from traveling are from those moments where I was relaxing and maybe it was just today I'm going to go to a local cafe with a book or with my computer and just sit and people watch and relax. And even if that was all that I did in that day, that was a wonderful memory. And I might actually remember more so maybe than I'm remembering doing something more traditionally touristy. Back to uh, remote work, any tips? Do you have any tips for people who are looking to move into doing remote work outside of teaching online? So if you're looking for, maybe if the person's looking for a job that is remote, but for a company, for example, they don't want to be a business owner or an entrepreneur, there are a lot of sites that you can go to. Some are free, some have a little like small membership fees to find those jobs for bigger companies, uh, like flexjobs.com is one that I use. And then of course there are sites where you can do freelance work like Fiverr and Upwork. Mm -hmm. But if you think that you wanna be a virtual assistant, do copywriting or like something more along the lines of start your own business, there are several courses that I could recommend. There are also, if you just look around on Google or on Instagram, you'll find many people who are in that space and find some good options. Excellent. Thank you. So what is one thing that you, or something that you wish uh, people asked you that you never seem to get the chance to answer when you're talking about living, traveling abroad or anything that we've talked about today, really, or anything we haven't? That's a very good question. The one thing that I definitely don't like to be asked is when someone says, so what was Korea like? Because it's so general <laughs> and it's hard to condense three years of living there into <laughs> one quick answer. I feel like it would be nice like if someone knows about my mental health situation if they would ask a question like how was that for you there or mm -hmm. how did did you handle that transition? That would be a lovely question for someone to ask or even what coming home was like. Mm -hmm. Because those uncomfortable feelings are when when the growth happens and more people ask very general questions about Korea. I'd also love if they asked, what did you learn about Korea? Because like a lot of people, I think I only knew about the, the Korean War happened there and MASH. What did you learn about Korea? Oh, uh, so much. I have such a great appreciation for Korea's history now. I didn't know that they were had been colonized by Japan and mm -hmm. were still mm -hmm. colony of Japan until the end of World War II. I learned a lot about... Confucian values there and the traditional dress as well as I really came to admire the sense of 
community. I, I know there's a specific word for it, but they value more the sense of the group or the feeling of mm -hmm. the group versus the individual. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I was eating with friends, that could be hard because things were all about sharing. But I think it's nice to have a balance between the feeling of the group and being very individualistic like mm -hmm. we are in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's very true, yeah. And again, the same in terms of Taiwan. Did not know that they had been occupied, colonized by many countries, many nations. Did you try stinky tofu when you were there? I did. It was not my cup of tea, but I definitely understand why people like it. I had a, a lovely conversation with my Saturday morning class at my first job that I had, where we uh, laughed equally over how stinky blue cheese is, which I adore, and how stinky stinky tofu is, uh, which they adored, and how each of us did not like the other one, but how they were equally stinky. So yeah, it's all about, I tried it, didn't like it, but fully respect, we all have different food preferences. Did you? I did, I went, my first trip from Korea was to Taipei, and I tried it, and I thought it tasted fine, but I did hold my nose while I was eating it. Last question, I think. What advice would you give to someone concerned about their mental health in moving abroad, and both generally and or specifically for South Korea? I would tell them not to rule it out, absolutely, but to definitely, if they're seeing a mental health professional, to talk to them about it. But again, ultimately, the decision is yours. It's your decision if you want to go or not. You can handle it. You can do it. But mm -hmm. I definitely talked to my counselor. I talked to friends that I trusted. I... Again, like I talked about before, prepared for the emergencies so that mm -hmm. eased some of my anxiety. But just know that you're still going to have it. You're still going to have those low moments, but eventually you will adjust. And when you like come back home, you will be amazed by the things that you've done. Oh, I thought of one more thing. Yes. So when I, went, when I was in <laughs> Korea, you know, the getting counseling wasn't an option for me as much because mm. BetterHelp and Talkspace weren't around and the other options that are there. So I did want to mention that is something, you know, that you can do if you're considering going abroad is to get that online counseling and mental help because that would have made so much difference for me. Like mm -hmm. I only was able to get medication. I didn't get counseling mm -hmm. while I was there. So that is something else they can consider. Yeah, that's an important point and definitely something that is much more available now and much more possible now. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. Uh, it's been really lovely talking with you and I really appreciate all of the information and uh, advice and, and discussion about your experiences and how open you've been. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Teach Travel Talk About It, an international TEFL Academy podcast hosted by Jasira Vardak, mixed and edited by Ian Kelly Davis. For more information about teaching English abroad, visit internationaltefelacademy.com or find us on social media at International Tefl Academy. Thanks for listening.